Well, this may seem like a, a bit of shameless cross-promotion, but I want to share a story this morning that I wrote this past week uh, and posted on our PRISM blog. If you've not read our PRISM blog, it's, it's worth the read. It's on our website, prismchurch.com. PRISM Links, actually, is Stephen's weekly post, and if you're not particularly fluent and where to look for great information to grow as a Christian or just things to stimulate your thinking. Stephen is a world-class, worldwide web um, uh, uh, searcher. And and so what he will do is distill down for our church some great links. So thus ends the announcement. This portion of your sermon is brought to you by the Prism Church website. Now back to our message. Okay, thank you. Uh, The LA Times says we've had 167% more rain this season than is normal. Um, Good to know the number, but I think those tea leaves have been read by most of us already. Uh, One way recently I discovered how much rain we were getting uh, was the flooding that we experienced both here at Prism and in our home's side yard. Uh, So plumbers were dispatched here to the church last Sunday and last Monday to my home. And at my house, we discovered that the storm drains were badly clogged. And you can imagine, they've never really been tested. Uh, And we discovered that Prism Church, our building built over 80 years ago, had no storm drainage at all. Uh, That would tend to uh, create a flood environment if you have a deluge. Um, uh, but when you think about it, how would people in drought-stricken, normally low rainfall California know they had problems deep within the heart of their spaces if not for the storms that come our way? Now, metaphorically speaking, this is true of all of us. Westerners in particular, who are comfortable most of the time, spend very little time contemplating what is broken inside of us. Uh, It isn't until we experience a storm of some sort that we start to take a look at what's clogging up the works. I've shared on a number of occasions here at PRISM that a little over a decade ago, uh, I had uh, a bit of a breakdown, and the Lord used that uh, to point me to something that was broken deep within me. I had been on, if you want to call it this, a kind of a run of success in ministry for 15 years in youth ministry and starting a radio station and planting a church. And somewhere in the middle of all that, um, I began to forget that it was the Lord who was actually doing all of those good things in our lives and in the lives of the ministries that I got to be a part of. Um, As life was generally easy for me, I spent very little time thinking about the deep pain and brokenness within me on a number of occasions, I think. Uh, I could have slowed down, been been tuned to what was going on in my heart, but I chose to ignore it, and it was easy to do because I was comfortable. Uh, But a personal tsunami of sorts hit me in 2008, triggered by broken people like me. And it forced me to face up to some things which I'd previously been unwilling to look at. Uh, My relationship with God had some significant um, clogs. Uh, My relationship with family had uh, had some areas where I hadn't been paying attention to how insensitive I'd been. Uh, 
to them. And often when the storm waters flood over our lives with grief, we are forced to go to the Lord. And when we do so, we experience the comfort of his presence and then the opportunity that the pain affords us to listen to him. Some of us for the first time in a while about where he needs and what he wants to do to work in our hearts. We continue today looking at John 17. It's part two of our high priestly prayer analysis. The Lord has been trying in our context to prepare his disciples for the storm that was about to roll over their lives, warning them that he was going to leave them, warning them that it was going to be difficult. But things had been going really well for this group of people. I mean, they had been riding the cultural wave for three years. Jesus Christ was literally a superstar in the land, and they were his entourage. Things were going great. And so there wasn't really any necessity for them to think in terms of their need to depend on something. He was with them, but now all of a sudden they're going to be faced with the reality that he's gone. They're going to find out just how much they need his strength. Jesus begins this section of his prayer in John 17, 13 by saying to the Father, praying to the Father, I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So he's leaving and he's praying for them that they would have joy in his absence. See, he knows what's going to go on. They don't. And yet he still feels compelled to pray. We see this pattern from John 10 when Jesus goes to the gravesite of Mary, Martha, and their community of friends. Lazarus has died and has been buried, and Jesus comes and mourns with them and then prays aloud even though he knew what he was going to do next. Hear the text here again, if you don't remember, John 10, 41 through 44. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he'd said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. It seems too simple a principle to mention, but if you ever wondered why the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, very God from very God, why the incarnate Son of the living God prayed? Why? If he knows what's going to happen, if he kind of has got it all, the whole world in his hands, then, then what's that all about? And... You think about it, there's really only a couple of reasons. One would be that he's always communing with his father and he likes talking with him. But the other is, we need it. There's something rather simple about that notion, but somewhere in the providence of God, in the sovereign eternal decrees of our creator, from all eternity he determined to build into his functional plan for the universe that the only begotten son And the Holy Spirit, both persons, one with the Father in being, we're going to spend time interceding for us. 
But this is part of their ongoing ministry to pray. That should underscore just how broken we are and yet just how clueless often we are about how desperate we are. Jesus said, without him we can do nothing. That is a a statement that in our culture, people have a hard time getting their heads around because they just see themselves as so self-sufficient. What do you mean? I mean, God helps those who help themselves, right? Which is incidentally, for those of you who don't know, not in the Bible. He says that without him, we can do nothing. And the fact that the, the Son and the Holy Spirit ongoing, in an ongoing fashion, pray for us should underscore for us just how much we need him. And here's some great news. Before we launch into an analyzing what Jesus is actually praying for us, here's some great news. It rained the last couple of days. It rained last night. It rained on the way to church this morning. And I got good news for my family. Our internal storm system is working great. You see, God intends to help us identify where he needs to bring health to our lives. Part of it is because He's preparing us for the inevitability that there are going to be more storms. Uh, We are going to need to see God do more healing in our lives. He's going to patch up certain pieces of us, and then he's going to say, okay, let's talk about this stuff over here. Thank the Lord he does not reveal to us all of the broken pieces of our soul at once. It would be way too overwhelming. So he's kind enough to go, let's go patiently a bit at a time. We'll get this corrected. You've managed to stop, slow down. You recognize there's a backup, there's a problem. Let's dive in together, see where I can bring healing. Now, let's march forward because, as he said in John 16, 33, in this world you're going to have trouble. There are more storms a-brewing. After praying for himself here in John 17, Jesus is then going to put two categories of prayer in play. One, he's going to pray for his disciples, then he's going to pray for the people who believe in him as a result of the teaching of the disciples. And in some ways, his prayers for the disciples give us a reflection of his heart for us, because if you're a child of God, you are by definition a disciple of his. But beyond that, he's going to pray very specifically for the future believers in Jesus, and that'd be us. So let's look at what he actually was praying for both of those people groups. And what Jesus prayed for the first disciples was this, protection and sanctification. Protection, from whom? Sanctification, what does that mean? Jesus prays this in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. You got two very religious words cooking here. Sanctify and consecrate, and they mean effectively the same thing. It's to take something and set it apart for a holy use. It's setting it apart. It's making something holy. It's, it's taking a table and making it your communion table. You're setting it apart for something of divine purpose. 
And so Jesus is saying he wants us to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be holy. And then he's himself consecrated himself, set himself apart for the purposes of God. Deep within this, his first prayer really is to protect the disciples. The attacks that the disciples, and really by extension all Christians, would experience, they all find their genesis not in the hearts of man, but in the intentions of the evil one. The devil is not a mythological creature invented by unenlightened humans to explain harmful choices of bad people or to try to bring definition to tragedy in the ancient world. Jesus spoke of Satan as being real. The scriptures testify that Jesus was tempted by Satan, had conversations with Satan, that Jesus cast out demons from people. And then finally here in his high priestly prayer, he prays for the disciples to be protected from the evil one. And for us to carry out some of the very specific calls of the Christian life, the distinction between the evil one and manifestations of evil that come through people like us is critical to know. If you're going to love those who hate you, to do that, you need to be able to, I need to be able to see who is ultimately to blame for the actions of fellow sinful human beings. And I say it like that purposefully, because if you don't see yourself as every bit as broken as everybody else, A lot of what Jesus says for us to do makes zero sense. Look at what Paul said. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians in 6, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. If we're to do as Jesus did and respond to hate with love, to turn the other cheek, we're going to have to be able to pray as he did. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they do. There's a level of compassion that's going to have to be able to see that just like we do, we so so frequently don't really understand what's going on. And people sometimes that are lashing out in anger towards Christians or towards you at the workplace just for being you, it's difficult, it's hard to see them as people that are just like us, they just are lost. This is why Jesus says, i got to pray for these guys. They're never going to get this apart from my grace. We're never going to be able to live like that unless we have an amazing experience where we grow in Christian maturity, seeing ourselves as every bit as capable of doing terrible things but for the grace of God coming into our lives. It's a call to humility. It's the characteristic of humility that is the cornerstone of Christian sanctification or being set apart, being made holy. When Jesus consecrated himself, he humbled himself and didn't consider equality with God, which he was entitled to, something that he was going to grasp onto, Philippians 2. We are designed by God as objects of great value, set apart by God, sanctified, consecrated, 
for the Father's purposes, hoping and praying that we would enjoy and prosper in the amazing task of having other human beings see the majesty of Jesus living in and through us. Jesus prays for protection from the evil one because protecting us, protecting disciples from the evil one is what would keep them and make them capable of continuing on in the process of being set apart for the purposes of pointing others to Christ. Jesus prays to be protected from the evil one because the last thing in the world that the devil wants is for people to see the glory of Christ because they will turn to him. Satan will attack Christ's disciples so they won't exhibit that which would exalt Jesus and as a result draw people to him with both repentance, a turning, and a following, and faith in what Christ has done. Jesus said as much. Perhaps you can remember the time that we studied John 12. In verses 31 and 32 in John 12, Jesus said these very words. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Part of the lesson that I had to learn in a really painful way that I have come to understand is not uncommon amongst ministers, especially young foolish ones, is that we, uh, somewhere in the process of being a young minister and being used by the Lord, you begin to think that you can do this on your own. And somewhere in the middle of that too, you begin to enjoy the fact that people are looking at you. And then you endanger yourself by becoming somebody who actually seems to want to stand in the way of the Savior. You, young ministers will foolishly use ministry as a means of making themselves feel better about themselves, uh, of getting other people to affirm them instead of being a conduit through which people would see Jesus. See, the, the issue is that we need to see Christ. And for that to work, ministers, Christians, we have to be humble enough to say, I got to get out of the way. You got to be able to see Jesus here. If you see too much of me, that's too big of a problem. That, that means that I could potentially be obscuring your view of the Savior. And it is a view of Jesus that enables people to be drawn to him. It's what makes people want to love him when they see him. The Christian call is to sanctification, being set apart as a means to point others to him, that others would see him in you. And boy, the evil one will get involved in that real quick because his root problem, if you study the scriptures, was that he wanted to be exalted as God. And so we need to be protected from the evil one so that we can be sanctified, set apart for his purposes. They're intrinsically linked, as are the two things that Jesus prayed for for future believers. 
What Jesus prayed for for the future believers was this, unification and evangelization. Listen to what Jesus prays here in verses 20 through 23 of John 17. I do not ask for these only, speaking of the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. For Jesus, unity of believers and reaching the lost with the gospel are intrinsically linked, and it makes sense if you think about it. If we have genuinely experienced unconditional love from God, and then in obedience to the Scriptures and just out of sheer humility that God has been that gracious to us, demonstrate that unconditional love to our brothers and sisters in Christ, people will believe that we really know and understand God's unconditional love. See, this this is real. These people aren't playing games. This isn't, you know, uh, do-goodism. These people have a real understanding of what it means to care for and love unconditionally. In the absence of being able to actualize this reality in our community, loving each other, with endurance and patience, you have to ask why anybody who hasn't experienced Christ would actually believe that the encounter we had was real. The prayer of Jesus is made precisely because he knows how difficult this is. I'm not a pie-in-the-sky Christian. I know how challenging it is to be in community with me. I don't know about what, you, what your self-evaluation is, but I got to tell you, I know how difficult it is to be in my family. I know how difficult it is to be in my community because I know how broken I am. And if you're anything like me, there's going to come a moment where one of us is going to try to get the other person to yield to their will. And so if two people aren't humbly walking before the Lord together and saying, okay, God's will be done, whatever, you, you know, and if that isn't the definite of how your relationships work, it's really, really challenging to live out the Christian faith. And so Jesus would say, I need to pray for these folks that they would be unified. He knows we're going to need his continual grace so we can rest in his unconditional love, that we can rest in peace about what he's doing in our hearts. Without an ongoing, experiential Christianity whereby we are growing in our security and the Father's love for us, we are not going to be able to extend a growing, servant-hearted love to others. And the world will not see with their own eyes unconditional, patient, faithful love. John records Jesus' prayer In verses 22 and 23, Jesus prays to the Father, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I am them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. And here you go. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. You see, Jesus sees a unified body of believers who genuinely love one another because they're experiencing Christ in a meaningful way, continuously humbled before the Lord, that's what's going to set the believer apart. That's what's going to make them say, I believe that Jesus is real. 
a lot of what John records as Jesus' high priestly prayer are things that Jesus taught the disciples to do, and then Jesus is effectively saying, well, I better pray, because these guys are never going to get this done unless the power of the Spirit gets involved here. Remember what Jesus said in John 13? It's, it's amazingly similar to what he's praying here in John 17. Jesus said to the disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. See, deep down inside, every one of us is a clogged soul. We are unable naturally to truly believe that God the Father's love for us is unconditional. Perhaps you've said this before. I get unconditional love and grace intellectually, but it's really hard for me to feel that God loves me unconditionally. I mean, this is like the story of my Christian sanctification, my Christian growth. It's an ongoing prayer that the Lord would somehow or another unclog the drain that my head has all this data about grace, love, patience, kindness, and somehow or another, in my experience, it's, it's not getting to it. And, and I know that by the way I react, by the way uh, I speak. These things are all indicators of what's in my heart. And, and so something is blocking all this information and I need the Spirit to work in such a way to transform my soul. Part of the reason that's difficult too is we know how rebellious we are. We each know that and probably have thought at varying times in our life, if people only knew what was really going on in my heart and mind, they probably wouldn't like be gracious to me. So it's really hard to believe that God knowing all of that is. Another aspect of the challenge is that in the broken world in which we live, filled with broken people like us, the way of this world, your day-in and day-out experience is conditional love. People respond to you if you perform well. And so it's difficult to even consciously understand, like, how does this work? The condition of our world is really unmerciful and, and, and proud. And, and you can see it all the time especially in, in the world of the internet, a, a lack of forgiveness now pervades the culture. It makes people feel superior to point out the foibles of others. And this past week we saw a flurry of public officials torn apart by a, an internet world that finds people guilty until proven innocent. And then even when they are admittedly failing and say, yeah, I blew it, I did this, they're quickly shown the door. No mercy is accorded. They are treated, ironically, in a very old-fashioned, public, worldwide web, kind of shaming. And this doesn't exactly encourage people to be honest and humble. There was a terrific piece written this week in the New York Times by David Brooks, a columnist who spoke of this culture of shaming, this culture of calling people out and beating them down. 
He says, quote, when denunciation is done through social media, you can destroy people without even knowing them. There's no personal connection that allows apology and forgiveness. Even the quest for justice can turn into barbarism if it is not infused with a quality of mercy, an awareness of human frailty, and a pathway to redemption. You see, Jesus says what distinguishes his disciples from the world in which they live is their grace and love towards not only fellow sinners in the church or fellow sinners in the world, but sinners who are trying to hurt you. I would say nowhere does this love, this patience, this endurance need to be seen more yet for so many has been demonstrated so very little. It needs to be seen mostly in Christian communities. PRISM's primary step in our mission is to revive believers, many of whom have stopped attending church precisely because of the inability of people to resolve conflict, the inability of people to actually love, humble each other, love one another. And this is the experience of people in this room, and I got to tell you, you work with people, you go to school with people, you have neighbors, you have family, you have friends. This is their experience. And until they encounter a community of people who can endure difficult times together, who can love each other unconditionally, it's going to be difficult for them to believe that the church is a safe place. Tonight, we ordain two new elders. And next month, we install our first four deacons. And so Jesus would be praying for us because the need our church has for unity amongst these groups in particular is paramount to our church's health, to our mission's success. Many of us have experienced the tragic pain of a church coming apart at the seams because of dishonest, dysfunctional, divisive Christian leadership inside a local church. Accordingly, both our diaconal and elder trainings emphasize that if a church experiences disunity within it, it almost always starts with unresolved and unloving conflict between two people who are either elders, deacons, or staff people. Never in my experience with the Christian church has ugliness in the church started outside of that triangle of people. You'd think that that group of folks would know. We can create real problems for the world that is watching if we can't simply humble ourselves before each other and love one another. Arrogance, friends, pride, these are the enemies of unity. And when people are unable to humbly admit failure, love is impossible, which is why Jesus prays for the future believers that they be unified so that the world might really believe that you sent me. His final prayer in John 17 is a declaration of his promise to continue to be faithful to us in helping us grow in understanding his love, which is why we emphasize grace so much here at PRISM. It's because we're thick. 
We're people that are broken and, man, we may be filling up with grace all day long, but at night, the broken pieces in our lives, the grace just leaks out. In the morning, we find ourselves graceless and empty again. Jesus prays, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen. Let us pray.